0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host,
1: Kevin Tofel,
0: And we have an amazing show for you today. We are going to be talking about Nest CEO being out of a job. GE predicts and Microsoft coming together for industrial IoT, a new smart microwave that actually has some cool features we need to talk about. Should you upgrade your Echo? UPS is taking on Amazon, and we've got some smart lock news, plus self-driving car news. And later on, we will hear from this week's sponsor, A pharaoh. And we're going to have our guest, who is Mark Allen of Jacuzzi, talking about how Jacuzzi added connectivity to a thousand hot tubs. Bubbles. Bubbles. All right, so let's get this started with a message from this week's sponsor. This week's sponsor is Avnet Podcasts. When you guide today's ideas into tomorrow's technology, you meet a lot of changemakers along the way. To bring their stories to life, Avnet has partnered with Not Impossible Labs to create a new podcast series about spectacular people harnessing the power of technology for the sake of humanity. Each week, they'll reveal new life-changing technology and the story of how it came to be. Listen now to podcast, Not Impossible. To find the podcast on your favorite podcast app, just search for Not Impossible. Okay, Kevin, we're going to start the show with a disclaimer. If you have a thing against, I think they're crows. They may be ravens. This is not the show for you because I am, I am doing this from the Pacific Northwest and there is a very excited blackbird that really likes to talk. So you're going to hear it throughout the show.
1: He's a fan of the show, obviously, but I have to actually add a disclaimer to before we talk about some of these things, I am currently doing some freelance consulting writing for Google again. It is specifically with their Chrome OS enterprise team has nothing to do with IoT, but just wanted to mention that because we will be talking about Google today.
0: So much Google. All right, let's kick it off with Google. Nest CEO is out. So Marwan Fawaz, who joined Google in 2016 and took over as CEO of Nest when Tony Fadell stepped down, is now no longer at Nest. Plus, as part of the reporting on this story, we learned that Google did try to sell Nest to Amazon also back in 2016. So a lot of stuff here.
1: Yeah, it all comes back to the same central theme that many of us had when Google bought Nest for $3.2 billion.
0: Back in 2014.
1: Yeah, that thought was they paid $3.2 billion, which is a lot. And ever since then, Nest has just never seemed to fit for whatever reason. From a financial standpoint, Google has a new CFO as of twenty. Fifteen, and that's Ruth Porat. And having worked at Google under Ruth, not directly, obviously, but Google is very much more held accountable for its finances now. And so that's an issue right there if Nest is not making enough money to recoup the investment, which I surely doubt it is. Then you've got the issues that Fidel had with Google. And we say he stepped down, but I think he may have been forced out. That's just my thought.
0: Yes, because his management style was not googly and they were doing too much and if you remember Google also had their own smart home efforts at the same time so there were like parallel tracks of development tony was focused on developing this crazy new thread protocol right, right. and he wasn't focused on products and they were forced to integrate dropcam and it just it was not a copacetic situation so he was forced out and then Now I'll let you finish, Kevin.
1: (laughs) Well, and then Marwan came along and they put him in charge. But as we're finding out, he really wasn't around that much. He lived in Denver, and the Nest team is in Palo Alto, I believe. So there's some grumbling on that fact. The change in leadership, maybe the leadership vision is an issue or was an issue, I don't know. All in all, what's happening now is, as you said, Marwan is out, and the Nest team is now moving under the Google Home and Living Room area, which is part of Google Hardware, which is run by... Marwan's old or ex-Motorola pal, Rick Osterloh. So Nest should be under, in my opinion, the Google hardware division because they need to be sharing information and their efforts and projects with all of their hardware to have a cohesive line of products. Right now, they don't. I mean, I still can't use Google Home with certain Nest products, for example. I mean, it's just weird.
0: Yeah. And Nest had been pulled back in February. Nest was pulled back into... Google.
1: From an Alphabet company.
0: From being its own independent Alphabet company. Right. And so this change I mean, because if you're going to be pulled back in as a hardware company with Google, you don't need your own CEO. So this makes sense. It also made sense back when they hired Marwan, it felt like they were going to try to sell Nest or figure out what to do with it. So in some ways, this is good news for people who love Nest gear, because it means that Google is not going to try to sell it. They're just like, okay, we've got it. We're going to make the best of it. We're going to start pulling all this stuff in. So so
1: I agree with you there. I can't help but wonder what would have happened if Amazon had bought it.
0: (sighs) Then we'd only have the Madame A universe, I guess. Because, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. And surely Blink and Ring would still be their, possibly be their own entities. They, I don't think they would be purchased by Amazon at this point. if They own. They Nest. definitely wouldn't have Ring. Right. They might
0: have Blink because Blink, I think, was much more of a hardware technology. Player the camera, the camera to,
1: sensor stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah, the digital imaging processor. Right. But here we go. Yes. So that's the latest on Nest news. If you own Nest gear, I think this is good news. If you're interested in Nest stuff, then
1: oh, one I, more thought. Okay. billion. Okay, I'm
0: done. Oh, remember the heaty fun days of the internet of things. (laughs) All right, let's talk about industrial IoT with GE, Predix, and Microsoft Cloud. So I've talked about Microsoft Azure for years. It is the top cloud of choice for people building in the industrial IoT. And GE has decided, yeah, that's true. So they are going to be pulling together much more integration between the Predix appliances and software and Microsoft's services and software. So you're going to have more integration between Microsoft Azure Analytics, Azure IoT, and GE's Predix stuff. This is part of an ongoing theme that we're seeing in the industrial IoT, which is all the big vendors have realized there's a couple of realizations. One, they realized it's way too hard to pull all this stuff together for companies that are not used to dealing with IT stuff, right? IT integrations, blah, they don't want it. So GE has to work harder. Originally, GE was like, hey, we can do the IT side too. And they were building like Predix Cloud and all this crazy stuff and poof, that's gone. So they realized that they should let the IT guys do the IT stuff and the industrial guys do the industrial and OT stuff. But they had to really work together to create this really tightly integrated package. They love calling this an end-to-end solution. I personally hate that phrase. But in this case, it actually works. So that is what's happening here. We're seeing it happen all over. We're seeing companies like SAP and SAS and Siemens, all of them tying up these cloud assets and even doing some partnerships with like vertically specific companies as well. So it's a big deal. It's another you know coup for Microsoft and credibility in the industrial IoT. And yeah, that's what this is. (laughs) Yeah, I don't claim to be
1: an expert in Microsoft Azure because I'm certainly not. It's not anything I've looked at in detail. But one thing I did note in here, and I don't know how true it is or isn't, but one of the other benefits for GE is to enhance the Predix platform security layer through Azure. So that is always a good thing, assuming that is true.
0: Assuming that is true, I just they don't will know. Try to enhance it. All right. Well, speaking of GE, we're going to move from their industrial stuff, making jet airplane engines and all that good stuff, to their home appliances. They announced on Tuesday that they had created the GE Smart Microwave. This is a microwave that is Wi-Fi connected and is integrated with Madam A, and you basically can scan a barcode on 3,000 different microwavable products from Hot Pockets to Lean Cuisines, and it will automatically know the instructions and cooking times. And you just pop it in the microwave and you can even say, Madam A, start the microwave. And then poof, your meal is cooking. So
1: what's amazing about this is for the price.
0: Oh, well, that's what Kevin thinks is amazing. The price yes. is 125 Actually, the MSRP, which is the manufacturer's Said price is that what it actually stands for?
1: Suggested <laughs> retail price.
0: There we go. So, MSRP is $139 for this. So, my gosh. Oh, you've got a kid going to college. Do you feel like this is a good college thing?
1: I think this is a great college thing, although her college requires you to rent the microwaves that they provide, but that's a whole other issue. Absolutely. I mean, it's not a huge microwave, it's a 0.9 cubic feet. So, it is perfect for like a dorm and a bathroom. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's and it's also not expensive.
0: No, it is, the MSRP is 139. And then as part of Prime Day, they did a deal where they bundled this with an Amazon Echo dot for 125. Now, as of this moment, that deal will be gone. So, but today is not Prime Day. Today is not Prime Day, but. It's pretty sweet, I think. So here's why I'm excited. Kevin is rightly excited about the price, but I'm excited because it's going to have what's called the cooking and time controllers with Madame A. So consumers will be able to speak directly to her without using GE's appliances skill. So this is basically native support for cooking and time controllers that Amazon has now added. So you no longer have to say, Madame A, ask Geneva to start the microwave, you can just say, Madam A, start the microwave. So this is huge. I agree. It signals one, the creation of a new type of native skill for Madam A. And two, it signals that GE recognizes that asking Geneva for stuff is sucky.
1: Well, now I wonder, I wonder how many other partnerships will come about once people start enjoying the fact that they don't have to name the skill in their command.
0: Well, so that's what I'm like, will this be exclusive to GE? Because that's an interesting revenue opportunity for Amazon. Or does this just become everyone else can use it? So that's question number one. And observation number two is that Delta Faucet is working on an Amazon integration for faucets, which means you'd have native support for turning your water faucet on. We talked about that last week with our guest. So I have a lot of hope in my heart that Amazon is trying so hard to become this standards layer for smart home and the smart kitchen. Yay?
1: Yay, indeed. I mean, if they can come up with standards that will eventually, let's say, have Madam A work with all Madam A-enabled voice services, not have a skill for it at all, just have an API layer that will work with different brands and so on behind the scenes.
0: That could be big. So not only is the microwave cool, but how you talk to it is worth noting as well. Speaking of the Echo, Kevin, do you want to upgrade your Echo?
1: I do not. However, that is a question we commonly hear from friends, colleagues, and countrymen and women around the world. And
0: I feel like we should give a special shout out to our friend
1: We Chris. should. He's in your backyard there because he's in Washington State. Our old <laughs> he's colleague. the one
0: bothering the crow right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably. Mr. Chris Albrecht, who has... We worked with him in the past at GigaOM, and I, I know he's doing some podcasting work these days as well. It hasn't been for a while, but every once in a while, Mr. Albrecht would ping us and say, Kevin, Stacy, should I get a new Echo? Is it time to upgrade my Echo? Is there a new Echo coming out? Should I get an Echo now? How about now? So yes, I'm making fun of Chris, but it's actually a valid question. And Rye Christ over at CNET poses that question in an article that we both looked at before the show. I don't know. I mean, Rai makes some good points. I mean, you have to understand if you're going to buy a new Echo, then you are committing further to being in the Amazon ecosystem. And that's fine. That's totally okay.
0: It's a good ecosystem right
1: now. Without a doubt. You and I are both happy in it, as are many other people. However, I like flexibility, and I'm glad Rai pointed this out. That's why I was kind of hot on the Sonos One, because it came with Madame A out of the box, but is also getting Google Assistant at some point this year. That's the plan. It did recently get AirPlay 2 as well for controlling music through your iOS device by voice with Siri. But So I'm not interested in upgrading my Echo. I still have an original one and many dots, and I'm fine with them. I don't see the need. Even the newer one with the hub is just lacking some radios for me. So again, no thank you.
0: Yes. And now would you recommend they buy the Sonos One as opposed to the Echo if you have nothing?
1: If you have nothing, I would say yes, because you are not locked in to one platform. If you want to be on the Madame A Amazon platform, you can do that today. If you decide, I might get some things that might work better with Google Home products, then that gives you an out. Or you, could just have, would... you can have both even, you know, you can...
0: That's what I have. Yeah. It's confusing. Okay, so yes, and I have the original Echo that I bought for 99 bucks in December of 2014. And it still works. It sounds good. And Rai is making the point that maybe Amazon should update it because the market has changed significantly. But I actually don't think I actually think it's better that it hasn't changed significantly because it just becomes this base device that sits in your home and controls everything. I mean, that's kind of the point of having software based updates for these things. That's one of the benefits of connectivity. So
1: Agreed. And what should they upgrade it to anyway? I mean, they have had newer versions come out. They have upgraded it.
0: Yeah. So he's saying they need a new flagship line. I say, no, this is like, it's almost becoming an appliance in your home that you just set and forget and you just, it works. And I like that a lot. Same. All right. Let's talk about, oh, more Amazon news. UPS is taking on Amazon Key. Sort of. Kevin? You want to talk about latch?
1: Yeah. UPS has announced that it's got a pilot program with latch smart locks for in-building deliveries to multi-unit homes, aka apartments and such in New York City. This is a trial program, pilot program. And basically, it's very similar to the Amazon Key in that, you know, if you have a package and you live in a New York multi-unit home, UPS can now get in and leave your package. It's not going to leave your package in your apartment or your living space. It's going to just leave it in the building. So it's kind of limited in that regard. It's not meant for single-family homes, such as what Amazon Key is doing with their camera and smart lock and or their access to vehicle trunks as well. So this is very limited by comparison.
0: But it's, but it's a great, start. And it's great for this use case. So I wrote about this company, Latch, that UPS is working with. And the idea here is there's a lot of apartments that don't have doormen. I mean, I lived in New York City. I had a non doorman building. So you know they either leave it out – well, they don't leave it out front in an apartment building. But the apartment building can now basically denote like a mail closet. And then you can get in and get your package when the time comes. So I think this is great. Yeah. It's going to be useful for a lot of people – to not have the traditional single family homes. And it's a really big deal for Latch, which is a startup. And so we'll see. I think it's really, I like it.
1: Yeah. Two things come to mind. One, I never knew you lived in New York City.
0: Really? I lived there right after college.
1: I didn't know you right after college. Two, this could extend to other delivery services, I'm thinking, like pizza, Chinese food, et cetera. Yes, that that is is very very much their plan.
0: Yes, yes, yes. yes. So. The latch door locks, they control access in and out of public areas in these apartments, but they also can be placed on the residents' doors as well. So what can happen there then is this could go further. UPS probably doesn't want it to go further because they don't want their delivery guy having to go down an apartment making all these deliveries. That seems kind of crazy when you could just dump it in a mail closet. But yes, for you know service providers, for pizza delivery, whatever. Grocery yes, deliveries. Oh, yeah. groceries. Yes.
1: You could say Latch has a foot in the door.
0: Ah, wah, wah, wah. All right. Also in the lock news world, a similar startup. This is a startup called OpenPath. They just raised $20 million. Instead of residential locks, these guys are providing smartphone-based access to buildings, offices. So they are very similar, except I think of it kind of like August, partially because I went to August Locks you know offices when they were starting out and these guys give smartphone access to a building so the say instead of having your like nfc card or rfid card whichever you know i've only worked in one building where i've had a card kind of situation so i'm like i'm a little unfamiliar with it but this will let you in so these guys raised 20 million dollars it's a large amount of money they've been i've written about them before they've been doing this for i think about 2 years so it looks like we're kind of slowly upgrading our access infrastructure Woo
2: woo.
1: And we actually have a lock related question in our listener voicemail a little bit later on the show. I just want to point that out because there seems to be a very big difference between industrial or office enterprise locking and home locking. So I'll leave it at that for now.
0: Yes. Okay. Final lock story for you until we get to the voicemail. August says it has 1 million users.
1: Users. Yay. Users, not customers with locks yes. or locks sold.
0: So I don't have an August lock on my door, but I am technically an August user because I have a doorbell. And my husband is also a user because he is a user on that doorbell as well. So we are at least two of the million with our August doorbell. The question is, how many locks have they sold?
1: (laughs) Right. It's a milestone for them for sure. I'm not trying to downplay it, but I'm trying to keep it in perspective as well.
0: Yes. And Nest has sold more than a million thermostats. We found out that the Arlo guys have sold. More than 7 million Arlo products. And we found out Sonos has sold more than 19 million Sonos devices. So when you think about those numbers in the context of the US having 100 million households, about 310 million people, you know, the smart home, it's got a lot of room to grow. Or maybe it won't grow at all. We're not sure. (laughs) So speaking of the August doorbell, Apple Insider has noticed that Apple has purged the doorbell category from the HomeKit accessories page, and it is indeed true. So it suggests that August and Ring doorbells that were promised to give us HomeKit support, which meant you could open the Home app and see what was happening on those devices, it seems that may not happen. This is a big deal for people, especially on the Ring side, because the Ring folks have been promised HomeKit support for years, and they've just never gotten it. So Apple has not commented yet. On this story, it is unlikely that they will say anything substantive because it is Apple. But this is worth noting if you're kind of a fan of these doorbells and HomeKit.
1: I'm a little surprised that Apple has pulled this. Just wondering what they have in mind, because it is not like them to have a suite of products and have a gap in that suite.
0: Yes, but it could be that the security implementation for HomeKit just doesn't work on basically what is a battery-powered Wi-Fi connected device that's supposed to like last for a while. It does could feel, be. I mean, all of the other camera implementations are wired to my knowledge. I don't know. Yeah, it, we'll could, it could
1: be power related. You're absolutely right. I kind of feel like Apple, they went simplicity with their protocols, but as a result, they have limiting options.
0: Okay. Moving from locks, let's talk about cars.
1: Cars, not the movie, but cars that we drive or that drive us. I had not heard of this company that I'm about to talk about briefly. It's called Zooks. I hope I'm saying that right. It's Z-O-O-X. Basically, it is a startup that believes autonomous cars should be built from scratch, applying sensors and everything else that we need, all the smarts that we're applying to currently available vehicles is not the way to go. It's a very radical take. And there was a very good profile on this company and the CEO, at Bloomberg. So I learned a lot from reading it. They're basically creating robot taxis, autonomous taxis. They're taking a very different approach. Again, they're building it from scratch. And it's a bi-directional taxi. It literally can go forward or backwards at the same speeds. So that's kind of unique in some sense compared to today's traditional cars. They have to do all their testing with currently available cars. They can't put their own cars on the road yet, because they just don't have... I mean, these look like sand dune buggies right now, just frames, essentially. It's very interesting, though. They're going to have the sensors actually communicate to other cars, or other drivers, I should say, with long LED strips and such, to suggest that, hey, there's a problem further up ahead that I noticed, you should be aware of it, or I'm going to make a right turn now, and it's all clear ahead of me, etc. So it's just a unique take on things. And I'm kind of interested to follow, especially because they've raised about, well, not about, they've raised $800 million. That was the other big news for them. $500 million in early July, just so very recently. And that is at a valuation of $3.2 billion. So clearly the investors support them and see a vision here. It'll be interesting to follow.
0: You know, even if it's not on roads, there's a huge market, like, even if it's not for consumers, there's a huge market for delivery vehicles for industrial, you know, self driving cars. So why the heck not? All right, also in the car world, light, which is a camera company has just raised Oh, another big round of funding 121 million to bring its camera tech to self driving cars, Kevin.
1: Yes, Light is probably better known, if you know them at all, that is, as a camera company. Their camera looks like a smartphone in a sense, but it has 16 different sensors and lenses on it. And most smartphones today at best come with maybe two rear-facing cameras. This has, again, 16. The reason they do that is because they use software and AI to create the best possible photo using 16 different viewpoints in a sense and sensor information from all of these sensors. And it's really a cool idea that camera alone is $2,000. Again, it's the size of a smartphone. It's not a DSLR or anything like that. It's just a handheld $2,000 intelligent camera. But what they're doing is, and why they just raised money, they are planning to sell the camera technology to connected car companies, because a lot of these car companies are using, I wouldn't say off-the-shelf camera components, but they are using things that are readily available. LiDAR obviously is not something that I would say readily available and inexpensive, but from a camera perspective... There's not a whole lot of amazing new technology being used in connected cars. So this could extend the vision capabilities of our connected cars, which in turn would obviously give it more information and be smarter and perhaps even cut costs because maybe they wouldn't need to use as many LiDAR and other sensors.
0: Wow. That would be pretty cool. I'm pro getting rid of LiDAR.
1: A $10,000 Tesla.
0: Woo. Okay. So that was our smart car news. Kevin, you want to talk about the Tick watch?
1: I do, and we don't talk about too many wearables these days just because that market seems to have slowed down in terms of innovation. But there is the TicWatch Pro is now available, and it is an Android Wear OS smartwatch. Personally, I'm not a fan of Wear OS. I got away from the Android smartwatch platform once I started using Apple Watch. I mean, it just was more consistently stable for me, added features, usability was better, etc. So I think Google has a lot to do with Wear OS. However, the TicWatch Pro is kind of unique in that it solves one of the major issues with Wear OS watches, and that is battery life. So what this device has, it has what you'd expect, like a 400 by 400 resolution OLED display. But on top of that, there's an LCD display that's transparent. So It has two modes. One is an always on mode with that low power LCD display that can show some basic information. And the other OLED displays for using, you know, certain apps that work with Android Wear OS, such as music apps or exercise apps and so on. So, what this does is it really resolves the whole issue of really poor battery life because I have not found a two or three day battery life watch with Wear OS. It's typically one day at best, as is my Apple Watch. I can sometimes get two, so I don't want to, you know, draw too many conclusions there. But you can go for days and days on this two days on smart mode when it switches back and forth between the displays and multiple days up to 30 days in just what they call essential mode. So that is the LCD watch face always on. So it's a nice balance. I thought it was an interesting use of technology.
0: So good news on a possible watch, although eh, Android wear, but you also have a pro tip for people.
1: Yeah, real quick little pro tip. If you have a Fire HD device, the current one, the tablet, I actually have one. So this is how I found out with a software update. It was a week or two ago that Amazon said, hey, we've got a Fire HD tablet charging stand. And that will turn your tablet into an Echo Show when it's in this charging stand. Well, it turns out you don't need the stand. You just need to have your tablet plugged in. And I found that out again through the software update. It explained all that to me. So I have a case that doubles as a stand for my tablet. I just leave it in there and plug it in. And now I've got Echo Show capabilities without having to buy Amazon's charging stand.
0: I'll be curious to see how you feel about the kind of Echo Show capabilities. I'm not 100% sold, but my daughter freaking loves it. So...
1: I never was sold on it. So let's see if it wins me over.
0: There you go. All right. Thank you for that pro tip. And now let us get to other tips, basically in the form of the IoT podcast listener hotline. So this hotline is brought to you by Schlage. Don't miss your chance to win a Schlage Sense smart deadbolt and Wi-Fi adapter this month. So you'll enter to win by calling us at 512-623-7424 and leaving us a question. You have to do this before the end of July, so midnight ET on July 31st. And remember, smarter homes start with Schlage. Okay, this week's voicemail is from
3: Rob. Hi, Stacy. This is Rob up in Chicago. We are doing a commercial
2: build-out of our office spaces and looking to do some kind of Bluetooth door lock for both our offices as well as other folks in the building. However, I know a deadbolt won't work and a commercial space need to be able to push it open from the inside. So wondering if there is a commercial version of a Schlage or a Kivo or anything like that. Thanks. Have a great day.
0: Ooh, Rob, this is a good question. I'm really glad you asked it. And we came up with a couple solutions. They're very expensive, but one of them we think is actually probably the optimal one, which is buying a Bluetooth lock from a company called Ultralock. That is Ultralock with an L-O-Q. Actually, if you have a deadbolt, this lock won't work because it would cover up your deadbolt hole and it would be bad. So, this is waterproof. So, you could do it indoor and outdoor. You can use a fingerprint, a code, or a key to unlock, but you have to pick a fingerprint or a code. You can't do both. And it is Bluetooth enabled. So, that means you can't do it remotely because you'd need a Wi Fi bridge. But people seem to like it, except for the fact that they don't love the fingerprint functionality. So, I would say go key code if you can.
1: Yeah, definitely. That would be the way to go get rid of the biometrics. So it, as you said, Stacy, this does not require, in fact, it won't work with a deadbolt. It works with a traditional lock or door strike. It does look like it belongs in an office because it's satin nickel, it's a lever and battery powered, obviously, because there's no power to your door. And it's only $199 from smart home. Dot com, which I think is pretty reasonable considering this is really a very unique lock in that it's Bluetooth without a deadbolt.
0: Oh, and I saw it's a one uh, forty five ninety nine on Home Depot's site. Oh, so,
1: there you go. There you go. Yes. It does work with Android and iOS. And with the app, you can knock on your display screen if you have iOS, or you can shake your Android phone to unlock on either one of those platforms. And that's kind of handy.
0: And so... In the other weird category, <laughs> I don't even know how to think about this. There is a company called Haven. It's havenlock.com. And this is instead of a door lock, this is actually a bar that you either screw into your floor, or, I guess, tape to your floor. I'm a little unclear about the install there. And this bar actually has a little A little chunk chunk of it comes up and pops in front of your door and prevents it from opening. So this is smartphone tested or this works with a smartphone. And I don't even know what to say about this. Well, when
1: it's it's unlocked, when it's unlocked, the little pop up part is down into the base of it and the door can freely open. It's Bluetooth enabled. And when you. Want the door locked? That little section pops back up and keeps the door from opening. It's kind of interesting. It's like extending the sill of a door or a doorframe and just having something that blocks the door from opening. So you can step on it to lock. It's kind of interesting,
0: but it's not cheap and it is kind of odd. It's $349. So if this is important to you, and I can't imagine how this gets installed in carpet, but you know, if this works for you and you like the look of this, it's kind of.
1: They say it's 10 times stronger than a deadbolt. And that sort of makes sense because a deadbolt is rather small compared to the large center pop-up section of this that has more surface mounts to the door.
0: Yes. Oh, they do have a tape. They have a tape install. So you use 3M VHB tape. Man, 3M is like the secret winner in the smart home, you guys. I mean, how much <laughs> how much 3M double-sided tape have I deployed in my life?
1: For me, it's command strips, but that's because a lot of things are temporary for testing.
0: Yes. So those are the options. I also was looking because I saw this, and this is fairly common. I think I saw it at CES or Cedia, but a magnetic lock that they're basically electromagnetic things that you use to replace your lock cylinder and then also the key strike pad on the inside of the door frame. And those basically, when you, they close when there's electricity running through, activating these magnets. And then, you know, you turn off the electricity and the magnet unlocks and then you can unlock the door. They do require power. And they also, I didn't find anything that was Bluetooth enabled. So you may look for something like that if you have like an existing smart home system, because a lot of companies offer that. But otherwise, and that's actually cheaper. You can buy something to replace your. Door cylinder for like 60 bucks.
1: Assuming you have wired power available to the door frame.
0: Yes. I was like, but you've got to have power and it's not going to be Bluetooth capable. So those are the things we found. And hopefully, actually, call us back. Let us know what you chose or if you hate all of your options. So that does it for this segment of the show. Stay tuned for Mark Allen of Jacuzzi. He's going to talk about how the company has connected their hot tubs, what products they used, and a lot more. In the meantime, here's a message from this week's sponsor, Afero. Hey, everyone, we are taking a break from this week's IoT podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Afero, and I have Afero CEO Joe Britt here to talk to us. So let's start with what is Afero?
3: Afero is a fully integrated, fully interactive, fully secure sensor-to-cloud IoT platform. Our customers choose Afero because they can cut down their time to market by as much as 80%, which cuts down on both cost and complexity. Engineers love the robustness of the Afero service and how they can reuse 90% of their work from project to project. And in-consumers love how easy it is to get their devices connected and how fast and responsive they operate.
0: Okay. And last week, we talked about the work that you've done with Kenmore. This week, we're going to dive deeper into the security you guys provide. So tell me about your security framework.
3: Security is a big deal, and it's only going to get more important, both for businesses and consumers. The challenge, though, is that IoT is an end-to-end kind of technology, and so is security. To make IoT trustworthy, not only do you have to secure all of the data paths, but you also have to secure identities, you have to build security with resilience, and then you also have to secure the manufacturing process, the supply chain.
0: So what does it mean to be able to ensure trust throughout the supply chain?
3: If you think of your PC, all data paths are secure, and there are firewalls all over the place, and yet malware still continues to get through. So we know you have to go beyond secure data paths. The bulk of IoT devices don't have a lot of local processing power, so we really need a different strategy compared to the PC or even a smartphone. And then IoT devices could also have a much longer life than a PC, and you have to ensure that they're secure five years, ten years, 20 years on, we expect this will be the next battleground when you have to go beyond just securing the data paths. And we designed the Afero platform with that in mind. I can boil this down to two main things. One, building trust points in hardware in the right places in the process. And two, integrating them into the rest of a decentralized IoT stack across multiple protocols. If you're using a communication protocol built on TCP IP, this is relatively straightforward. But if you're using something else like Bluetooth, it's not straightforward. To address this, we came up with two very useful inventions. One, something that we refer to as an eSIM for IoT. Now, this is similar to the SIM card in your smartphone, but it's a hardware root of trust for the device. And second something we call VPN for IoT. Now, one of the shortcomings of VPN historically has been that it worked only over TCP IP networks. So this is not totally appropriate for IoT. But we've developed technology that overcomes these.
0: Okay. So in practice, how does this process work?
3: There's a hardware root of trust that's built at a secure facility that enables us to build the rest of the system at non-secure facilities. And then we use that to cryptographically prove to the cloud that the device is who it says it is when it connects.
0: That sounds great. So, where can we go to find out more?
3: The best place is afero.io slash go big.
0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Mark Allen, who's VP of IT at Jacuzzi. Hi, Mark. How are you doing?
2: Good. How are you doing, Stacey?
0: Man. I have to say I am really excited because we're going to be talking about connected hot tubs and everyone loves hot tubs, right? I hope so. So before we started recording, I learned a little bit about hot tubs and I'm going to give you guys the same benefit. So Mark, briefly tell us the journey that you guys are on at Jacuzzi. When did you launch your connected products and a brief bit on
2: why? We've been looking at the IoT platform for quite a while, back when it was, you know, machine to machine and trying to figure out when the right time was to dive in, so to speak, no pun intended. But we launched the initiative back in June of last year, and it was a really quick production cycle. We dedicated a few people from the company and partnered with Article from an implementation partner perspective and a very rapid implementation cycle and launched uh, our first product went down our manufacturing line in November of last year.
0: Wow. And you now told me that there are like 500 of these guys out in the field that are connected or 1000 out in the field and half of them are
2: connected. That's correct. Yeah, we're still in the infancy, but feedback so far has been phenomenal.
0: So we're going to talk about what you guys have learned from this. We're also going to talk about the process of connecting these things and get into why. So let's start with what are the benefits for a consumer who's buying a connected hot tub? And then what are the benefits for you guys?
2: Yeah, from a consumer perspective, we've had an app, a mobile app in the past that you can control your hot tub with. And that's obviously the first benefit of a connected hot tub is the consumer can control their hot tub. So from a vacation home or something like that, or if they're on their way home from work and they want to heat the hot tub up a couple of degrees so that it's ready for when they get home, they have that obvious benefit. But above and beyond that of a true IoT hot tub is they get the additional benefit of the hot tub being able to communicate back to them. So maintenance reminders, they have to replace a filter or something like that, as well as the ability to get error notifications. So heaven forbid something goes wrong with that hot tub, that error notification comes to them as well as it comes to us and as well as notifies their local dealer. So action can be taken on those errors. And your initial thought may be, well, how important is error notification on a hot tub? But if a hot tub is in an area where it freezes and it's a vacation home, someplace that you don't visit on a regular basis, and the power goes out, our IoT device has battery backup. That error notification becomes critical because now you only have a certain amount of time to drain that hot tub or restore the power before damage occurs to that hot tub. So the dealer or the consumer can take action prior to damage occurring to that hot tub.
0: Wow. Okay. I'm like sitting here. I'm like, I know nothing about hot tubs. So you guys sell your hot tubs to people not directly.
2: Right. Yeah. We have an independent dealer network and we sell our hot tubs to the independent dealer network.
0: So some of your thousand connected hot tubs are probably sitting around in inventory at a dealers as opposed to consumers not connecting them.
2: Yeah, that's true. So right now we're in the process of selling those hot tubs out to the dealers and filling a supply chain. So all of those hot tubs, those thousand hot tubs, about 500 of those right now are connected in the consumer's backyard and the other 500 are kind of in the supply chain right now.
0: Okay, so let's talk about those 500 hot tubs. What have you learned so far? I don't know if you've seen a lot of error messages, but what have you learned from the 500?
2: We've learned quite a bit about the process of IoT, so we're on probably our, I would say, 18th iteration from the launch of just fine-tuning everything from the firmware. I mean, the great advantage for us of doing the IoT platform the way we did it is we can flash the firmware over the wire. So everything from the firmware to the actual application. So we've learned a lot about our consumers, and then we also have just launched in-app purchasing. So the idea being that when a maintenance notification is given to a user for a filter replacement, for example, we know exactly which hot tubs the consumer has. So they don't have to hunt around about which filter fits their hot tub. When they get a maintenance notification that they need a filter replacement, they can immediately click on to purchase a filter. And they are directed to the exact filter that they need.
0: And is that through the dealer or is that direct from y'all?
2: Yeah, so the way it's set up today is it's direct from us. And then we do a proceed back to their local dealer. In the future, we'd like to set it up to the point where it's being fulfilled through the dealer. And then they will also have an option to pick that up in their local dealer.
0: Okay, because this is a really interesting conundrum for many companies when they're dealing Mm -hmm. with a dealer network, and a connected device. So how did you guys approach your dealers when you were launching this and, and kind of cut them into the process? I don't know, is it still important in this day and age to have them?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely important for us for a couple of different reasons. One is our dealers not only sell our hot tubs, but they also service the hot tub. And then from a consumer perspective, a hot tub, you know, it's an important purchase. It's a significant purchase, much like a car. So we encourage our consumers to actually do what we call a wet test, is to physically go to a dealer, sit in a hot tub and do a wet test. Hot tubs are very different, not only by brand, but also by model. So we encourage them to go into a dealer and actually do a wet test before they purchase a hot tub. So the dealer is critical in that sense, and they also are the ones that do the actual installation of the hot tub. So the approach to our dealers was that this benefit the dealer from being able to provide a connected hot tub and then also from a dealer perspective, we give the dealer a portal that enables them to see all of the hot tubs that they've sold, their connected hot tubs, the status of those hot tubs, and then also any error messages that come in. So from a dealer perspective, they can quickly see any hot tubs that have errors and then they can also run remote diagnostics on those hot tubs. So from a dealer perspective, that's a huge benefit. In the past, they would get a call from a consumer I've got a problem with the hot tub. And they would roll a van with you know everything in it, kind of hoping that they had what's needed in order to repair that hot tub. Now they can run remote diagnostics, and they've got a pretty good idea what's wrong with that hot tub before they go out in the field.
0: Okay. And I bet there's actually some really interesting things because these guys are, I'm assuming, kind of geographically clustered. So if I sell, I've got X number of hot tubs in my service area, if there's like, if it's going to freeze, for example... You could send out a friendly warning and establish this relationship, ongoing relationship with the customer.
2: That's uh, exactly right. Yep.
0: Okay. And what about you guys? Because I know in some industries, like the insurance industry, for example, there is also, it's not exactly a dealer network, but there's, there's a middleman and they're looking at connected products as a way to kind of not bypass them, but get more information on their customers and understand what they need and establish a direct relationship with them. So I'm curious if you're looking at doing that somehow as well.
2: Well, I mean, we see the value in the data, right? So, yeah, that's the phenomenal, phenomenal part for us. So looking at the data that's coming in from all of the hot tubs. So in the past, any data that we were receiving from the hot tub was warranty type data. And that warranty data was coming in from a technician that was out in the field and repairing a hot tub and saying, hey, here's what occurred in the hot tub, right? So it was only when we were receiving data, it was on a failure. And that was a human interaction with that hot tub. So it was an interpretation from a human. Now the data that we're getting from the hot tub is not only errors, but it's also any type of activity that's going on in the hot tub. So we can see, based on temperature, how much the circ pump gets turned on, how much the heater gets turned on. When there are errors, we can see correlation between those errors and other things that are going on in the hot tub, usage, temperature, all kinds of different things. So the data for us is extremely rich from that perspective. The other part of it, too, is not only correlation for warranty, but then also for future product development. So in the past, we would go out and we would survey 100 users, 100 customers, right? And say, hey, you know, what's important in a hot tub to you? Now we have that data, and it's not only 100 users, it will eventually be all of our users. So it will definitely drive future product development. And that's a huge. I mean, that the value of that is just unbelievable.
0: Oh, yeah. And a lot of people tend to say, Oh, my gosh, that sounds amazing. I would totally use that. And then they don't. Okay, let's talk about the process a little bit more. When you guys made this decision, you said you worked with particle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is not as simple as saying someone calling you up and saying, Hey, I want some IoT on my jacuzzis. You're like, who talked to you about this? Where did the order come from? And how did you start approaching this as a problem to solve?
2: Yeah, like I said, we had a previous application mobile app that controlled our hot tubs. And we had been thinking about doing some type of connected hot tub for quite some time. So we were looking at doing, long before we knew really what IoT was, we were thinking about doing a machine-to-machine kind of interface. And we had been thinking about that for years. And we had approached different companies for doing something like that and had just never found the right company to partner with. And then we, actually it was our CEO, had I think been sitting on a flight next to one of the CEOs from Particle and just had been talking about it. And that sparked interest. And that's what began the discussion with Particle. And the Particle partnership was, it just was a perfect fit from day one. And when they came in to meet with us, and we started talking about what we wanted to do and where they were at in the process, it was a perfect fit.
0: Okay, and I have to ask, so I'm really excited that Zach, who is the CEO, must have sat next to your your guy, but are you guys using their Wi-Fi or using their cellular
2: yeah, we chose to use cellular and that was an important part for us. We have used Wi-Fi in the past in our previous product and Wi-Fi for us had some issues because of our product being in the backyard and because our product is under the covers in a hot tub. So we have electronics that are under the covers, we have water, and then we have the backyard, the distance to the backyard. So we were dealing with all of those things as well as trying to connect to somebody's, a consumer's Wi-Fi network. And that just presented a lot of issues for us. So we decided that we wanted to go with cellular to alleviate those issues and also make it easier on the consumer. So that was one of the key things for partnering with Particle is we really wanted to use the cellular network.
0: So I'm very familiar with Particle Do you just, did you buy the boards and just slap them on as part of your electronics? Or how integrated and how much work did you do with them from the board and physical stuff all the way up to like your hosting and building the app?
2: Boy, I wish it were that easy. We wanted more of an integrated solution. We have a lot invested in our current infrastructure that's under the top. So... No, the partnership with Particle was really taking their existing board and customizing that and allowing Particle to do a lot of work in interfacing with our existing infrastructure that's in the tub. And then building out the Particle cloud, customizing the Particle cloud, and then building out the AWS infrastructure for Jacuzzi so that we had a really tightly integrated system from end to end.
0: And how do you guys connect with your dealers?
2: So our dealer portal is provided through Salesforce. We have a Salesforce community. All of the activity, the error notification and everything comes in from AWS into Salesforce. So our notifications come through Salesforce as well as all the notifications out to the dealer. And the entire dealer portal is then built within Salesforce.
0: So what would you like to see after you've done this and you're now operating this and you hopefully will see it grow to I don't know how many hot tubs are sold a year, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of hot tubs. What do you need?
2: You know, I, I think the one thing that makes me the most nervous is not so much on the jacuzzi side as it is on the consumer privacy issues that we have these days. You know, things like GDPR and Castle, those things make me nervous. And I, I don't know if they do you, but those things make me nervous when it comes to IoT And especially with the fact that California just came out, you know, just announced that they're creating their own version of GDPR. What hoops are we going to have to jump through in order to continue to advance this platform in the future? How are we going to be able to continue to do business with all of the regulations that are going to exist in the different parts of the world?
0: Would you like to see one unified or maybe one unified regulation is kind of absurd, but maybe three or four?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it would be astounding, right? It would be absolutely amazing if we could have one unified version of GDPR. I think that probably that probably will never happen, at least not in our lifetime. But even if we had three or four different unified GDPR-type policies, to start getting to the point where we have state-level GDPR policies, in my mind, that's going to wind up being a nightmare.
0: And to be clear, your issue isn't necessarily with the regulations or the idea of giving users control of their data. It is more just trying to implement many different versions and variations of those types of regulations?
2: That's correct. Okay. Right? Yeah, I have no problem with the consumer privacy. I completely believe in consumer privacy. It's more of trying to implement that across the different geographical areas. So if you have a different policy in California than you do in Texas, for example, trying to make sure that you treat that data differently in California for those consumers than you do in Texas and designing your application around that. And then, you know, like I said, if that balloons up into 30 different policies, then doing the development around that and keeping up with those policies.
0: Since we're on privacy, let's talk about our other favorite friend, security. Security. So right. how are you guys dealing with security at all the various levels? Because I can see a hot tub hack being kind of dangerous, possibly.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could. So we were very careful from the very beginning, working with Particle and Pandera to make sure that we use the industry best practices and security from beginning to end. So we do a, a whole variety of different security measures, depending on you know what device is communicating with what. So depending if Particle Cloud is communicating with AWS, or if Particle Cloud is communicating with the device, or if the mobile app is, you know, communicating directly with Particle, you know, we do different things from shared keys, all different types of security measures. But our consumers, rest assured that when they communicate with their hot tub, it's secure from end to end.
0: Right. And also that no one will get boiled alive in their hot tub.
2: (laughs) <laughs> that's exactly true. Well, that's also handled from within our controller in the hot tub itself. So, if that hot tub decides to for some reason try to overtemp, it goes into an overtemp error. So, uh, it does not allow the hot tub to overtemp.
0: I imagine I <laughs> I imagine that there have been safeguards for quite some time in the hot tub industry. Yes, there have. Because <laughs> yes. uh, people, you know, they get into these and maybe they're not their best selves. Who knows? So okay, so let's talk about what all of this costs, because this is very different, or I imagine it's very different to build a connected product and maintain it. And you have kind of some ongoing overhead, it may not be crazy expensive, but hot tubs last a long time. So I'm trying to think about how you change how you sell these things, how you project liabilities for these things. How does that all kind of how does connectivity change that kind of math as a business?
2: So right now we're targeting our premier products, and we quickly hope that the IoT platform will be self-funding. We quickly plan on having the IoT platform, what we branded SmartTub, on all of our devices. And it should very quickly be a revenue generator for us through the driving additional hot tub sales because of it being a connected product. We believe that it's a differentiator in the industry as well as the parts and accessories, the accessory sales for the app itself. So when somebody is prompted with that message for a filter or for chemicals or something like that, that additional sales for the Jacuzzi branded products, we believe, is also will drive that revenue.
0: Recently, I read about GE Appliances. They're doing a smart fridge, and it actually won't dispense water if you don't put a GE branded filter into the refrigerator. As you can imagine, that did not go over well with people. Are you thinking about doing any sort of DRM associated with your jacuzzi filter only works with your jacuzzi hot tub?
2: No, I mean that's I don't know that we could ever get to that point. I mean, you know, our warranty states that you should be using your, you know, Jacuzzi branded filters. However, I mean there are aftermarket filters out there. You know, we believe there's definite benefits to using your a Jacuzzi branded filter as well as other parts and accessories, but will we get to a point where we physically turn our hot tub off if you don't use one of our products? There are no plans right now in the future of doing that.
0: Okay. I'm all for convenience. I'm like, if something comes up and is like, oh, Stacey, you need a new filter. Click here to order. I'll be like, boop, bing, done. But there are those bargain hunters out there. So, right. okay, Mark. I have learned a lot about hot tubs, which I have not experienced a whole lot of, and the whole process. So thank you so much for coming on the show today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at Stacy on We'll see you next week.